Today, we begin with a kid. Uh, Southern California surfer culture, party culture kid that didn't know anything about God or Christianity or Adventism or Ellen White. This surfer culture, party culture kid is named Ty Gibson. And late in Ty's 17th year of life, my mother went to a series of meetings, came home, and announced to us kids... Ty is the oldest of four. Hey, I'm a born-again Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And we said, what's that? And she said, well, uh, among other things, uh, you're never watching TV again, and we're all henceforth vegetarians. Along with her new faith and these changes came some new books and some new people. And altogether, Ty and his siblings got the idea that his mom had become something pretty out there. And he pushed back as much as he could. And one of the people that was introduced into our world at that time was a a young man. He was probably in his 20s. And he was a youth pastor who had just come out of seminary. And uh, he and I had a couple of conversations. And I asked him to never talk to me about these things again because I didn't believe any of it. And I thought that it was very much along the lines of the Greek myths and maybe even Jane Austen, for all I knew. It was just, you know, literature and it wasn't true. And in one of those conversations... I I kind of flew into a torrent of words on him. I said, listen, I'm not God and I don't claim to love everybody like you say he does. But if I saw children dying of starvation, I'd feed them. And if I, I'm not God and I don't claim to love everybody like you say he does, but if I saw a man beating his wife, I'd stop him. So don't tell me God is love. That was my reasoning. And he was humble enough to say, that's a really good question and I don't know the answer to it. I don't know how to answer your question, but the first chapter of this book your mom has here deals with that subject. And he promised he would never visit me again if I would read the first chapter of this book. And he pointed to one of the books. And it was Patriarchs and Prophets, the first book in the Conflict of the Ages series. Uh, And that first chapter is titled, Why Was Sin Permitted? And that was the first piece of not just Ellen White literature that I'd ever read. That was the first piece of any religious material I had ever read in my life. Uh, Had never even read a line from the Bible to that point. And uh, in order to get him to, you know, keep his part of the bargain and never come and visit me again, I said, yeah, I'll read it. And we said goodbye. He left the house. And I thought, I don't need to read that. And then somehow I just felt like, you know, I told the guy I would read it. So I sat down uh, and I read Why Was Sin Permitted, the first chapter of Patriarchs and Prophets. And that was my introduction to Ellen White, to Christianity, to everything theological. Patriarchs and Prophets explains in the book Prophets and Kings, your hands on the desire of ages. Ellen White makes it clear in Acts of the Apostles. Great Controversy 612 says. From Types and Symbols, this is The Conflict Audible. A show about Ellen G. White's Conflict of the Ages series. I'm Ivan. I'm Livy. And today, an introduction to Volume 1, Patriarchs and Prophets. And I would argue that this first chapter 
provides the framework for everything that Ellen White is trying to do in this first book and in the entire series. She's wrestling with the problem of evil. Why is there evil in God's good creation? And how has God been working to overcome the problem of evil throughout the history of creation? This is Martin Hanna. I am a professor at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary in Barron Springs, Michigan. Martin was born and raised in the Bahamas, did some of his education there and on the island of Jamaica. Did a PhD here at the Theological Seminary, and now I've been teaching here at the seminary for 15 plus years, having a great time doing it too. I talked to Martin about a few different topics, but I'm introducing him here to give us some context on this chapter and this volume. And in this first volume, she wrestles with that question as she reviews the history of the patriarchs and prophets of the Old Testament, uh, beginning with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and continuing down to the time of David. So that's the scope of this first volume in the Conflict of the Ages series. Actually, this first chapter, Why Was Sin Permitted?, begins even earlier than Adam and Eve in the Garden because it begins with where sin originally came into existence, which actually was in heaven itself. Uh, Lucifer, uh, the first leading angel in heaven, was the one who originated sin. And so the whole question of why did God permit sin begins in heaven, and then sin, of course, transmitted itself through Lucifer's temptation to Adam and Eve, and we've been struggling with the sin problem ever since. And understanding this framework for Ellen White's writing of this series helps us also apply and understand what she's talking about. If you're unfamiliar with this first chapter, this is how it goes. The peace of the heavenly kingdom is disrupted when Lucifer rebels against God, accusing God of tyranny and injustice. God offers Lucifer multiple opportunities to reconcile with, quote, efforts as infinite love and wisdom only could devise, unquote. But Lucifer chooses not to reconcile with God and is exiled from heaven. And everything that follows, all of human history and even universal history, is essentially a result of that accusation and God's response. Now, very often we read her writings and forget why she's writing. And her purpose in this series is to wrestle with this question of why was sin permitted? How is God solving the sin problem through salvation, by faith through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross of Calvary? This really is the center of everything that she's writing. Uh, another key concept is the idea of the love of God uh, being revealed in creating a universe where we are free creatures, therefore we can choose sin or we can choose righteousness. God created us out of love and we must respond to him in love. And this is why sin became possible because God created free creatures. In fact, the first words of her book are taken from 1 John 4, 16, God is love. And so she thinks of the love of God as the solution to the sin problem that she wrestles with in this book. Those first three words made a pretty big impression on Tai. Well, when I read that chapter, I didn't have any religious or theological background, so most of the vocabulary didn't mean much to me. Even the title, Why Was Sin Permitted? The word sin was pretty nebulous in my mind. I associated it with you know, the bad things going on in the world. That's the best I could make of the word at that point in my, in my thinking. But the first three words of the first chapter of Patriarchs and Prophets, the first three words are God is love. 
And I just kind of rolled my eyes. And I thought, well, yeah, that's uh, of course not. No, God is love. What are you talking about? Because my context experientially is that I grew up witnessing a lot of a lot of insanity, a lot of concrete pain and evil. I grew up watching my mother be repeatedly abused, violently abused. And so the idea that that God existed was a big enough hurdle, but the idea that if God exists, that he actually is good in some sense, God is love, I thought that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard because I associated the notion of God with power. So I, I thought very simplistically as a teenager along the lines of, you know, if, if I have the power uh, to, you know, spend $20 to buy some food to feed a hungry child on my front lawn and I choose not to do it, then I'm fundamentally bad. If somebody starves on my watch when I could feed them, hence I have power to feed them, but I don't, then something's wrong with me. Or if I have the power to swim and I stand on the shore watching somebody drown when I could jump in and rescue them, then I'm a bad person. I could not wrap my mind around the idea that God loves people if God is associated with power. If he could do something but doesn't do, apparently to me, it looked to me like he wasn't doing anything to intervene on anybody's behalf to stop bad things from happening. I thought, well, at at best, God's a psychopath if he does exist. So when I read God is Love, I thought, well, that's a crazy idea, but I said I'd read the chapter, so I kept reading. And what developed, like I said, I didn't understand most of what was in the chapter, but what I did understand is that, that freedom is primary, not power. So, so once that dawned on me, I had a shift in my thinking. I thought, okay, hey, wait a minute. If, if God is love and love requires freedom, then I could wrap my mind around the idea that, okay, you could have you know, an all-powerful God with a world like ours on his hands if he operates by the higher value system of giving us freedom over exerting control. So that was when the penny dropped for me. I said, wow, I've had this thing all wrong. I've been thinking if God exists, there wouldn't be any suffering or evil in the world. When the truth is, if God exists and is love, then of course there would be because we would have had the free moral agency to bring about this kind of world. So that, that, was, that was the point of my, what Christians call conversion. At least intellectually, I was converted. Yeah, this is a challenging problem because if freedom is the reason why sin arose, then how can God solve the, the sin problem while maintaining our freedom? Would God then have to take away our freedom in order to solve the sin problem. And this is part of what Ellen White is writing about. She's trying to solve that problem. How can God be committed to his wise decision to create free beings, maintain their freedom, redeem them from sin? And I like to put it this way, God's goal is to sin-proof the universe so that when the great controversy between sin and righteousness is finished, 
sin will never arise the second time. But if God is able to solve the sin problem without removing freedom, then clearly freedom is not really the problem. The problem is with our misuse of freedom. And the question is, how can God help us to learn how to not misuse our freedom so that those who are redeemed will be committed to the way of righteousness throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity and will never fall into sin again? And for Ellen White, uh, the key solution is the love of God. If God is able through the process of the great controversy between good and evil to demonstrate his love in such a persuasive and powerful way, then uh, love itself will provide the security of the universe. And we will be so much in love with God when we see how he deals with the sin problem that we will never fall into sin again. Now that's too brief a summary of everything Ellen White is saying, but I think that's a key theme of the whole book. And if we bear that in mind as we read her writings, I think we'll understand a lot better what she's trying to get across. Too brief a summary. That should probably be the title of our whole show, but what both Ty and Martin have introduced here is really the key theme in this book. There are certainly other themes besides this too, but this one's the main point. One more person we want to introduce you to is the prolific, honorable, highly esteemed... You know, I hate titles. So if you're forced to call me Dr. Davidson, you can, but I'm happy for you to call me Richard. Richard. The less formal and the less titles, the better. Richard, like Martin, teaches at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary at Andrews University, and he's pretty familiar with Ellen White, fourth-generation Seventh-day Adventist, Adventist education all the way through. So I got well-versed in her writings. I did have some experiences in college where some of my professors expressed some doubts about the full inspiration of her writings and about uh, whether she was uh, truly a, a messenger of God or not. And I've gone through my own times of doubting and, and wondering that, but the more I have been able to study the scriptures and then compare them with her writings, I find that she is very clear that we are not to accept her writings above the Bible. The Bible is the only standard of, of our rule and faith. And in fact, if we had only studied the Bible as we should, we really wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have needed her writings. She's, as she calls it, the lesser light to lead us back to the greater light. Richard is actually something of an expert on studying the Bible as we should. His title, in fact, is Professor of Old Testament Interpretation. I like to look at any part of the Old Testament, and especially I like to see how it relates to the New Testament, because I see the Bible as a whole. And so... Yes, I do exegesis, theology, look at biblical languages, anything to do with the Old Testament. Exegesis, if you're unfamiliar with the term, has to do with really carefully examining a text and trying to understand what was originally being communicated. And for the last 40 years, Richard has been reading the Bible in the original languages, really deeply studying what was originally being communicated. And to be clear, Richard doesn't think everyone needs to be able to read Hebrew and Greek to study the Bible as we should. He actually says that the essence of the gospel is available if we read a wide variety of modern English translations. But it seems like a given that being able to read the Bible in the original languages is a huge advantage. And I wanted to talk to Richard specifically because as someone who knows the Old Testament really well and has been reading the Bible in the original languages, he has had a very unique insight and perspective into Ellen White's Patriarchs and Prophets. Various times 
serendipity experiences have happened to me where I would be studying some experience in the Bible or some passage in the Bible, and I would find this amazing insight there that I hadn't seen when I was looking in the Hebrew. And then I would go and uh, read Ellen White's comments about that passage, and I would I would find that she saw that all along, even though it wasn't in the English translations and she didn't know any Hebrew. And it astounded me over and over the insights that she had. Or on the other hand, sometimes I would be reading in her writings and find insights that she gave, which, as far as I was concerned, is not found in the Bible. And I wondered, well, is this maybe just direct inspiration or can we really trust this, what have you? And then I would be having my devotions or studying for a class and be reading the Hebrew connected with that subject and found that, lo and behold, it was there in the Hebrew and I just hadn't seen it before. So both ways, I found confirming evidence that Ellen White, even though not a scholar, not trained in the biblical languages, that she provided insights into the scriptures and and vice versa, that the insights you find in the biblical language of the scriptures often reveal that she understood those concepts even if she hadn't read the Hebrew or the Greek original. Richard wrote about some of these experiences a few years ago in a paper for a conference on Ellen White studies. But he's currently working on a commentary on the book of Exodus. He's about halfway through, and he says he's been finding dozens of instances like this, where English translations of the Bible will be missing a particular bit of nuance that exists in the original Hebrew. But when I go to Patriarchs and Prophets, uh, that nuance is captured, and it's, it's astounded me. So I've been overwhelmed. I probably found at least a dozen of them just this last week in studying Exodus chapter 14. Wow. <laughs> Just these nuance, the nu- nuances of the text that, whoa, it, it, it's, it's there in the Hebrew, and I find it in the Hebrew, and then I go back and say, man, she saw that. How did she see that? With those nuances, are they um, nuances that the original text is like open to, or the original text is clear on if you're reading it precisely? Uh, I think there's some of both. Often the weight of evidence is quite clear, and other times it points in that direction, it hints in that direction, and then you go and you say, whoa, okay, yeah, that's, that, that makes a difference. So there's both kinds. I really loved this conversation with Richard because in a lot of our research and conversations with other people and reading Ellen White's statements about her own intent in writing these books and what the people around her knew her intent to be, it seems pretty clear that this level of detail isn't really the point. But in Richard's experience, she happens to get a lot of the details right. There's lots of them, but why don't I start with the, the first page, the first page of the Bible, because uh, where God is saying, let us make man in our image according to our likeness in Genesis 1, 26, you have a description of humans bearing God's image. And the question's always been, uh, what is that image? What is that likeness? Richard explains that since the early church, a Greek concept of dualistic thought has crept into biblical scholarship. And with that, God has often been seen as a being that has no form and is simply spirit. And with that understanding, this question of what is likeness has typically been answered as an internal likeness, like character or something like that. 
And Richard says that this has been the main interpretation until the last 20 or 30 years, when some scholars have begun to recognize that the Bible does speak of a God who comes into space and time. But when you look at this text, it says, let's make man in our image and our likeness. If you go to the Hebrew here, you got two words. You got the word for image, which is tselem, and then you've got the word for likeness, which is demut. And these can overlap in meaning, but when they're used together elsewhere in Scripture, the word selim refers more to the external, concrete form of something, whereas the demut refers to the inward, abstract uh, character qualities. And so by God using both of these terms and saying, let us make humans in our image and after our likeness, he's really talking about the whole person, the, the external and the internal. And therefore, we're bearing God's image basically in the outward resemblance like him and also in character. And, and so I was delighted seeing that in Hebrew and then reading Patriarchs and Prophets, page 45, where Ellen White writes, man was to bear God's image both in outward resemblance and in character. And that was not the common understanding in the 19th century and the early 20th century when she wrote. God's image was anything but outward resemblance. And so she was going counter-cultural, counter-biblical uh, thinking. Now scholars are beginning to write using this language because they see it's in the text and these are the meanings of these Hebrew words. So Ellen White was way ahead of her times, you might say, in showing us that the image of God is both outward resemblance and character. In the paper Richard wrote, he has a few other examples of this. Notably, in Patriarchs and Prophets and its earlier iterations, Ellen claims that Adam and Eve were clothed in light and glory. The Bible says they were naked and without shame. But after studying it in the Hebrew, Richard thinks that this idea that they were clothed in light and glory is something that the original text supports. So if you're reading the King James Version, or really any other English translation of the Bible, you might see Ellen's claim as a clear and obvious contradiction. But if you read it in the Hebrew, in which the Bible was originally written, it's maybe, in fact, very much in the Bible. Personally, I am pro-shameless pre-fall nudity. And my theory is that when Ellen saw Adam and Eve in vision, God was just censoring them for her own sake. But I don't know any Hebrew. Have there been any things that she has talked about which has also been confirmed in your reading of the original text that like really shifted your understanding around God? Um, shifted my understanding of God. Well, yeah, here's one. There's an example in Exodus 20, which describes the Ten Commandments. And it looks very likely, I mean, as you read it, they sound like, you know, here are eight prohibitions, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, negative prohibitions, and then there are two negative imperatives. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So it's an imperative. They're commands. And they sound like, at least most of them sound like negatives. And that's the way I was raised thinking about the Ten Commandments. Here are ten do's and don'ts that make God sound rather harsh. And then I actually came across this statement that Ellen White wrote about the Ten Commandments, where she says, the Ten Commandments are ten promises. There is not a negative in that law, although it may appear thus. 
And when I read that, I said, how can she say that? How come there are 10 promises? Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. How does that promises? And so then I actually said, well, let's go back and see what the Hebrew says. So I started reading the commandments and I found out to my surprise that the, the grammar of the first three and the last five commandments, this, this structure can either be translated as a prohibition or the same structure, the same grammatical form can be an emphatic promise. It can be translated either way. So it can mean thou shalt not or I promise you, you will not. And the Hebrew goes either way. And the same with the fourth and fifth, which don't have the, the negative, but they are the imperative. But it's not an imperative. It's what's called an infinitive absolute in Hebrew. It's something we don't have in English. But when you look at the language there, at the grammatical form, it also can be translated either as an imperative or, again, according to the, the Hebrew grammars, as an intensive promise. So, grammatically, it's possible that all of these commandments can be translated as, as ten promises. And so, when you go to Exodus 20, I think it all depends on where you start. I was raised starting with verse 3, thou shalt have no other gods before me. But that's not the beginning of the Ten Commandments. That's not where God starts talking. He starts talking in verse 2 where he says, I am the Lord God who has brought you out of the house of bondage. I've redeemed you by the blood of the Lamb. I've saved you. God's already saved us, already redeemed us. He's talking to redeemed people. And to those redeemed people, he says, these are my ten words. And by the way, the Old Testament never speaks of the Ten Commandments as commandments. They're called the Ten Words. And so these words can be words of promise to redeem people of what God wants to do for them. But I also believe if you don't take that verse 2 and you just start looking at it as cold, harsh law outside the context of grace and of the covenant, then they become just cold commandments. And so a lot of my life was spent thinking of God as a, a God who demanded legalistic obedience. And when I saw that these, these promises are really couched in his amazing love and his amazing grace, the first 18 chapters, 19 chapters of Exodus are about his, his redeeming his people. And now he's saying, now I want to enter into this wonderful covenant with you. I want to give you promises of how you can live the kind of life that will be like my character. And so, yeah, that really changed my view of God. We know that Ellen had access to a whole library of materials when preparing her books. We'll get into this some more in a later episode and explore what all that means or doesn't mean for the nature of inspiration, but I want to note that Richard acknowledges the possibility that some of Ellen's grasp of the original languages could have something to do with the people she was reading. He hopes to someday do an exhaustive search of her personal library to see how much of these insights could be found in books that she had access to. But from his perspective, that wouldn't explain everything. You'd still have to wonder why Ellen selected these particular insights instead of the others that were more commonly held at the time. And speaking of preparing her books... Patriarchs and Prophets as We Know It Today is the first in the Conflict of the Ages series. It's 762 pages and the second largest of the five books after Desire of Ages. But Ellen didn't just sit down and write this book in one go. You may remember from our first episode that this whole series went through a few iterations. 
If we trace the history of this book through this lineage, we get about five steps. First, just after having what we now call her Great Controversy Vision in 1858, Ellen writes down what she saw in a book called Spiritual Gifts, Volume 1. The first three chapters in that book covering the fall of Satan, the fall of man, the plan of salvation, very similar to the first few chapters of Patriarchs and Prophets today. Second, six years later, in 1864, Ellen publishes Volumes 3 and 4 of the Spiritual Gifts set, subtitled Important Facts of Faith in Connection with the History of Holy Men of Old, as two volumes of Old Testament history, filling 383 pages. Third, Ellen decides to rewrite the Spiritual Gifts series as a new series called Spirit of Prophecy. So in 1870, she publishes Volume 1, which contains stories from the Old Testament roughly paralleling the content of Spiritual Gifts Volume 3 and 4. This one's around 400 pages. Fourth, while Ellen is working on these Spirit of Prophecy books, she publishes many of her chapters in The Signs of the Times, a missionary journal of the church. In most cases, she publishes in the signs ahead of the books, but the chapters from Volume 1 appear in the magazine after the book has been out for almost 10 years. The chapters are edited a bit for the non-Adventist reader with very little change until, and this is from an article her grandson wrote about the process, Coming to the experience of Jacob, Ellen White began to greatly expand the chapters, and as she continues the Old Testament history, it is difficult to correlate these with the Spirit of Prophecy volume. These chapters, appearing intermittently in 1880, 1881, and 1882, seem to present an intermediate step between Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1, and Patriarchs and Prophets. Fifth and finally, when Ellen visits Europe in the 1880s, she decides she needs to write out the whole story one more time in a third series of books, the series we know today as The Conflict of the Ages. But she begins that process at the end by first writing the book The Great Controversy, published in 1888. Then she writes the volume on Old Testament history, published in 1890, as The Great Controversy Between Christ and Satan as Illustrated in the Lives of Patriarchs and Prophets. The title was dropped to just Patriarchs and Prophets in its second printing, and this is the 762-page volume that we know today. As you can see, by the time we get to Patriarchs and Prophets in 1890, Ellen has already written a lot of material on these Old Testament stories. So it's worth mentioning here that in the process of preparing this book, and many others, Ellen had help from a few people. For example, a lady named Marion Davis, a longtime literary assistant of hers, helped with things like collecting existing writings and making grammatical corrections. In a future episode, we'll explore what exactly it means for a prophet to have a literary assistant, and how the editorial process as a whole worked and who all was involved, but for now, just know that in addition to Ellen not writing these books all in one go, she is also at times working as something of an editor, selecting and refining from her own existing material, and also, at times, the material of others. But again, more in a future episode. Okay, so now we know something about the content and key themes and process of writing this first book. We even know some things about Hebrew, which I had never thought to wonder before. But still, this is a bit of a broad view, maybe too, too brief of a summary. And while the purpose of this episode isn't to make everything perfectly clear, there is one particular question we had when reading this book that we thought it would be good to touch on here. 
If you're reading along in Patriarchs and Prophets, you may notice that Ellen makes some pretty strong statements about science. So I asked Martin to help us out. If you want to see maybe the most extensive exposition on this from this particular volume, Patriarchs and Prophets, then it would be in chapter 9 on the subject of the literal week. It's in that chapter that she shares a pretty extensive perspective of what she thinks about science. And as I read that chapter, the, the main idea that I get that Ellen White is trying to communicate is that there is no contradiction between God's revelation in the book of Scripture and God's revelation in the book of nature. And so she is encouraging us to study science. On the other hand, she has a lot of statements where she's obviously concerned with making sure that we don't ignore the book of Scripture, as Martin calls it. Now, when she's making that point, uh, if we're careless in our reading, we might get the impression that she is depreciating the value of science. But that's not her main point. In fact, Ellen White says in another place that uh, the book of nature and the book of scripture are in agreement and each sheds light on the other. Now, that's a very significant statement for me because she's saying not only does the book of scripture shed light on the book of nature, but also the book of nature sheds light on the book of scripture. Some other people we've talked to have contextualized these statements in a similar way, suggesting that at the time this book is written, these statements are much more pro-science than might be understood now. But what do we do when there are contradictions between statements Ellen makes or statements in the Bible and what science tells us today? Ellen White is saying to us something very important, and that is when there seems to be a contradiction between what Scripture says and what the Book of Nature says, You don't have to reject Scripture in order to accept the Book of Nature, but you can now interpret Scripture in the light of the Book of Nature, just like you interpret the Book of Nature in the light of Scripture. And in that interaction, in that dialogue, in reading the two books together, we get a better understanding of what Scripture was really trying to say. And we get a better understanding of what nature is trying to tell us because we're reading both revelations in relation to each other. So we better understand what God is telling us in Scripture. And I think the same thing applies to the writings of Ellen White. We ought not to read her writings as if she is writing a science textbook. Uh, Her book, Patriarchs and Prophets, which we are reflecting on at this time, is not intended to be a science textbook. So when she talks about specific issues in science, if you read carefully what she's saying, she's saying, look, You don't have to lose your faith in what God has said in Scripture because of what you have heard the scientists say. There must be some harmony between them. And then she gives us her version of how to harmonize them. Conversations about naturalism and Darwin's origin of species were very heated at the time Ellen was writing. Leading scholars and theologians were suggesting that science and Christianity had always been enemies of one another, with both sides pointing to the other as a source of great evil. And it's within this particular context that Ellen suggested that they are actually in agreement and can speak to each other, and that neither should be discarded because of what we discover from the other. Her idea that they complement each other is a very different path from the extremes of her day. That doesn't mean her way of harmonizing it is absolutely perfect, as if she knew everything there was to know about the Bible, or as if she knew everything there was to know about about the book of nature. But she attempts 
to harmonize the two and to show how one could think about both revelations in such a way that there would be harmony. We hope to come back to this topic in a future episode because some of her attempts to harmonize actually seem a bit imperfect. Some of the specific things she said relating to science, like the age of the Earth, the nature of volcanoes, and the size of ancient humans, seem to just be based on what was commonly understood during her time, and science has moved on since then. Some scholars of Ellen White have suggested different approaches for how one should understand statements like these, but since we haven't yet made that episode, there are a few things that can seem tough. The problem, in my mind, is not a real contradiction between the book of Scripture and the book of nature, and the problem is not a real contradiction between what Ellen White is saying about the narratives that she communicates in her writings and the history as it actually happened. The problem is that we have a limited view, a limited tradition about how prophecy works and how God speaks through prophets and how God speaks through pastors and how God speaks through theologians. You know, Someone listening to the recording of this conversation you and I have, who thinks in a very legalistic, traditional way, will be able to find all kinds of faults with what I'm saying. Maybe something I say is not exactly accurate, or maybe something I say is not, I didn't mean to say it that way, and so I, I misspoke, you see, and I could be misunderstood in what I'm saying. But that would be a very legalistic way of listening to the conversation that you and I are having. The, the better way to listen to this conversation is to say, uh, what's the central message that Ivan and Martin are trying to wrestle with? And, and can I learn something from listening to them wrestling with these difficult issues? And then, after having listened to them, am I motivated to go and study for myself? Because I might be able to discover some things they haven't discovered yet. You know, That's the more generous, Christian, loving way of listening to these discussions, uh, participating in these discussions. But there's a traditional legalism that doesn't have that openness. And so we're always looking and nitpicking and trying to find something wrong with what's being said and missing the main point. And I think we sometimes do that when we read the Bible. And I think we sometimes do that when we read Ellen White's writings here in Patriarchs and Prophets and in the rest of her series and in the many other hundreds of thousands of words that she has written. We don't read with generosity. We don't read with an open mind and a spirit of, of love, but rather we read with a hypercritical almost scientific, you know, spirit of saying, I got you, you made a mistake there. <laughs> but that's, that's not the way we should read the Bible. That's not even the way we should read a science book. Martin makes the point that science textbooks actually go out of date pretty quickly, and new science books are published as more information is discovered. Well, that's exactly the way it is in the way God reveals himself in Scripture. You see? God revealed himself to the Old Testament prophets at a level that they were ready to receive. And here, Martin gets into something that we call progressive revelation. When God began his relationship with Abraham, it was all over whether or not Abraham was willing to offer his son as a sacrifice. But God didn't let him go through with the sacrifice. When Abraham was about to kill Isaac, God said, don't touch the boy, lay not your hand upon the child. My plan is for you to offer a lamb in place of human sacrifice. So the story of Abraham offering his son is really partly a story about God teaching the ancient uh, men of faith that they didn't have to offer human sacrifice. They could use animals in its place. But do we 
do we offer animals today in our worship? No, we don't. Because we have progressed in our understanding of the way the Lord is leading us. And we know that the animals were just symbols of God's love, which he would demonstrate to us in a more perfect way through Jesus Christ. Well, when we read this progression of revelation within Scripture, do we then say, oh, poor Abraham, he, he was a false prophet because he thought he could offer his son as a sacrifice, and he must have been worshiping a different God than the God we worship today. Not at all. It's simply a matter of God condescending and accommodating himself to speak to us at the level that we can understand him at a particular moment in the history of human progress. In fact, this is the whole point of the Conflict of the Ages series, to document the progressive revelation that God has given over time. And she is dramatically telling the story of how God over time gradually helped people to understand better what he wanted them to understand. And so, so Ellen White is communicating a message and we need to read to get the message and not stumble over the fact that we know more than she knew about science. That's, that's beside the point. What is God trying to tell us through Scripture? And what is God trying to tell us through the life and ministry of Ellen White about the need to continue to study God's Word, to understand what He's really trying to say to us there, and also to continue to study the book of nature, and then seeing how the two revelations harmonize with each other. That's the big idea. And if we miss that, we miss what God is really trying to say to us. We stumbled over the details and missed the main message. One of my questions as we've been working on the show is whether it's okay to disagree with Ellen White and still think she's inspired. Like, if there's a detail she says that seems wrong or like it contradicts a detail in the Bible, what does that do to how we understand her? Like, you know how she has that quote about how you're supposed to sing all the stanzas of a hymn? Oh, for sure. That's a classic. We covered that extensively in episode one. So imagine that someone quoted that at you and you just responded, eh, I disagree with Ellen on that point. I can't imagine. Right? And what if it were about something she actually said in one of these books? Could we do that? It just seems like it would be such an uncomfortable moment. And I really enjoyed the conversations with Martin and Richard because I think at their core, they both have a similar perspective on how to read her, which is with an understanding that Ellen, while she mentions quite a few details, is really focused on communicating key ideas. And all of those ideas are ultimately about leading people back to the Bible and to Jesus. I actually find Richard's experience to complicate some of this for me. Like, it seems that at least some of these details are significant, or at least meaningful. But he shared something else that I think is really helpful. I don't, I don't use Ellen White to decide issues, to say, well, this is going to be it, and there's nothing more to say because she said this. Uh, because, uh, for example, I've seen where Ellen White has given an interpretation of something, but it seems like to me there, there would be another very good interpretation of that. And then a few weeks later, I read another comment that she makes on that subject, and she gives that other interpretation. And then I, I, there's some passages where I believe really there are four of interpretations, like the, the, the rending of the veil from top to bottom when Jesus dies. What does that mean? What does that symbolize? Ellen White gives four things that it symbolizes, and they're all supported by the text, all supported by the context. The same with when God said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And the Bible gives four ways that they died that day. 
the context makes clear that they started to die because they couldn't eat the tree of, the, of life anymore. And so they started to lose their vigor and that they would have died that day. The sentence went forth, but God provided the, the atonement by the first gospel promise there. So he substituted for them so they didn't die. And then they began to die spiritually because they were curved inward into, into selfishness. And, and then the fourth one is... Uh, the, the, the sentence went forth on that day. And all of those can be shown from the context of Genesis 3. And believe it or not, Patriarchs and Prophets has all four of those, all four of those ways that that was fulfilled that time. She, she caught them all. She caught all those nuances. For Richard, this serves as another kind of affirmation of Ellen's gift. And I think it also makes the point that Ellen giving one interpretation doesn't mean that that is necessarily the only or final one. So maybe we can disagree. Or at least say, yes, and. Well, you can see I, I like to talk about these issues and I can go on forever. But, uh, <laughs> but for those who want to know more, I say, read the book. It's Patriarchs and Prophets, first volume in the series, uh, Conflict of the Ages, written by Ellen White, a survey of God's uh, revelation, progressive revelation of his plan of salvation, his heart of love. Uh, beginning with Lucifer in heaven and ending with David, who was himself a great sinner. And in case you're wondering whatever became of that young kid, Ty, he kept reading. His girlfriend at the time was actually with him when his mom announced her newfound faith, and she also read that chapter. My girlfriend and I, my wife, Sue, we were both baptized together in March of our 18th year of life. It was shortly after reading the first chapter of Patriarchs and Prophets that we said, hey, if this is true, it changes everything. It, it, everything is different. There's no way you can sit on this. And so we began reading the Bible at that point and the rest of Patriarchs and Prophets and all of Prophets and Kings and Desire of Ages and Acts of the Apostles and Great Controversy. And since then, Ty has read many more books and written quite a few himself. He's now the lead pastor of the Storyline Church in Eugene, Oregon, and the director of a ministry called Lightbearers. And it worked. That seminary student stopped visiting him a long time ago. And you, if you read this book, even if you just read the first chapter, try to read it with generosity and an open mind and a spirit of love. The Conflict Audible is produced by Types and Symbols, an independent creative studio as a companion to The Conflict Beautiful, a new hardcover NKJV edition of Ellen White's Conflict of the Ages series. We've also put together a reading plan to help you work your way through The Conflict of the Ages in a year. Learn more at theconflictbeautiful.com read. This episode was produced by Ivan ruiz Knott with help from me, Olivia ruiz Knott, and Alex Prouty. Additional production support by Kendra Arsenault from the Advent Next podcast, as well as Brandon Schrader. Thanks to Kevin Burton and Tim Poyer for pointing us in some good directions and answering a lot of our questions. Many thanks especially to our guests Ty Gibson, Dr. Martin Hanna, and Dr. Richard Davidson for taking the time to talk to us for this episode, and to my partner's partner, Mark Cook. And please know that people being on the show or helping out with it or being related to us does not in any way mean that they agree with everything or anything we say, nor does it mean that they endorse or support the conflict beautiful. They are all just really nice people trying to help us do a good job at understanding and explaining Ellen. 
If you want to learn more about Ellen White from the people she entrusted with her estate, visit whiteestate.org. We are in no way affiliated with them, but they have a lot of great resources. And if you're a really nice person who can help us understand and explain Ellen, let us know. Did we get something wrong? Did we leave something out? Do you know a ton about something we've touched on? Did we miss an important point? Do you have questions? Do you just disagree? We probably want to talk to you. Visit theconflictaudible.com to get in touch. Like I said, I didn't understand most of it. Most of I was like, what, 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 what is this? Lucifer, fall of Lucifer, blah, 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 blah.